Welcome to the Collective West podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to supporting young people in Melbourne's West. My name is Julia. And I'm Michael. The Honourable Wade Noonan is the Executive Director of the West of Melbourne Economic Development Alliance and operates a consulting business, Impulsum Consulting, specialising in social procurement, executive leadership and public policy. In addition, Wade serves on a number of boards and advisory groups in the public health, human services and community sectors. This includes job banks, forensic care, Western Bulldogs Community Foundation and most recently, Homes Victoria. Wade has also worked in a range of challenging and complex policy and political environments, including as Victoria's Minister for Police and Corrections from 2014 to 2016, and more recently as Minister for Industry, Employment and Resources from 2016 to 17. He was a member of the Victorian's Legislative Assembly for 11 years from 2007 all the way through to 2018, where he held the seat of Williamstown. In 2020, Wade received a Companion of the University Award from Victoria University for his contribution to Government and Melbourne's West. He is the number one ticket holder of the Williamstown Football Club and an ambassador for the Indigenous Marathon Foundation. So I see you're a huge fan of Williamstown. Well, club. Um, yeah, they. I mean, one of my first one of my first wins as a local member was to win. I think it was about $3 million for the upgrade of the grandstand. Wow. And it was more money than they'd seen from a state government ever before. So uh, they felt obliged, I think, to give me the number one tickets. <laughs> um, but it was very nice of them because all the way through my time as a local member, I, um, I retained that number one ticket. And even when I retired, they actually split the ticket into the number one female and the number one oh. male. Oh. So Melissa Horn's the number one female ticket holder. I'm the number one male ticket holder, but um, yeah, I, I, I feel, I mean, sport's such a important community connector. Yeah. Um, it's not for everyone, but it is for a lot of people, whether you play it or people watch. So I've seen a lot of Williamstown play over the years and the one grand final that they did win, I was, I was actually interstate. So I was following it on my phone and um, it was very exciting because they made a lot of preliminary finals, a couple of grand finals, but I only won one of them and the, the one that they won, I was away, of course. Because mm. so. in the grand final a couple of years ago, right? They did. In 2019? Uh, well, they yeah. lost that one, I think, to Rich Richmond. You're right. It yeah. might have been the year before. It might have been 20, might have been 2018. Because one of my friends plays. Is that right? Yeah. With oh. Jake Reiser. Oh, yeah, yeah. Good player. Yeah, I went to high school with him. Yeah. I also went to high school with uh, Essendon player, Jaden Laverty. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, Current player. Like you said, yeah. it's so odd. Yeah. I'm like, I know this kid personally spent New Year's with him and then I'm yeah. seeing him playing footy on the TV. Yeah. Yeah, I had that experience when I was – high school and a couple of the students that I went to school with, I went to an all boys school, which probably explains a lot. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they went on and played, they played AFL. I was in the sort of Collingwood zone. So I was the only um, Western Bulldogs was then Footscray supporter in, in my whole area, which was, mm. yeah, which was, a, which was hard as a kid. Mm. Um, <laughs> not so hard now because the Bulldogs are doing so well and Collingwood are doing so crap. <laughs> which is really nice. In fact, um, I was sitting on the couch with two boys, with Henry the other night. We were watching the front bar and um, there was a very sad Collingwood supporter and I, I did something I shouldn't. I said, Henry, take a good look at this person. <laughs> Have a good look at them. See how sad they are? Yeah. Relish this. <laughs> because it's not very often in Collingwood's history where they're actually down towards the bottom of the ladder. Yeah. It's usually the Bulldogs. So yep. don't feel sorry for this person yeah. because this, this, was, this was my upbringing for the best part of 20 years. <laughs> Is that yeah. terrible? That's terrible. That's a good tip. 
<laughs> love that. I can't talk because a lot of the the teams that I support are going through the the down phase. Oh, you've like, got you've got multiple teams. Oh, well, not not in footy, but in in, in soccer. Right. So victory this yeah. year did did terribly, and yes. City just won the the championship and the premiers as well. Yeah, so, so they're, they're the they're the latecomers too, aren't they? Yeah, mm. yeah. But we've got a new team, yeah. Western United. Yes. We're carrying the hopes of the West, we'd, hopefully. We'd love to sort of house them at some point in the West, wouldn't we, in Wyndham? Yep. Build a big, mighty stadium. I've picked up basketball this year. That's been my thing. Oh, wow. Yeah. Henry, who's turning 14 next week, he's been playing basketball for about five years. So he's got me into Melbourne and they've been playing really good. In fact, they just won the grand final, which is really mm. exciting. So I sat there and watched basketball like I've never watched it before. So <laughs> one of the joys of COVID again. Well, you're almost you're, you're you're close to six foot, uh, six foot one, yeah, yeah. But I think it's good height for basketball. I, 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 I fear now I'm five just, nine. I can't I can't play any basketball. <laughs> oh, some of the best and most exciting players are the ones that are under or near enough to six foot or slightly under. But um, you could play all sorts of different sports. Both of you could. Nah, I'm not a sports person. No, at all. I, as much yeah. as I've tried to convince Julia. Oh yeah, she's she's not yeah. having it. Is yeah. that right? Not having it. Mm-mm. I'm trying to convince Victor to do Brazilian jiu-jitsu with me, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How's that going, Victor? <laughs> the, the campaign only started on Tuesday, yeah. so we're only he t- watched a Netflix movie <laughs> last <laughs> night about it. <laughs> That's all the rolling you'll do. Yeah, no, fair enough. What would be your sport of choice, Julia? As a kid, yeah, badminton. Oh yeah, mm, I was request. Yeah, yeah, I was only. I'm very limiting when it comes to sport and physical health. I was quite terrible at running. Couldn't swim. Still can't swim now. Me too. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, I don't know. There you can go. Swim. We're still learning. From <laughs> but definitely badminton, netball for a little bit. Did Did you play competitively badminton? I did. Yeah, but you know, Gilmore never really got very far. <laughs> I was good as a, what do you call it? As a pair. Right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I played with my best friend and we were pretty good. So we, yeah, we competed for a little bit, but Maribyrnong City College was, was a killer. Well, they were a sports yeah, dedicated, they were, aren't yeah. they? They're massive, aren't they? Yeah. And they have like, like four or five tennis courts. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty intimidating. You rock up in Gilmore's little bus and we're like, are we actually <laughs> going to make it to the stadium? <laughs> and then you see, you know, Maribyrnong and all these other schools rock up with these like slick buses and like tight uniforms. Matching like, uniforms. Already knocked out before you even started. Yeah, yeah. right. The podcast has started, by the way. That was um, well, okay. oh, yeah, that was a soft entry into <laughs> that, that. That actually might be the best part. And, and um, I've already turned the tables. I'm asking you the questions yeah, right now. So this has started. Like, a, this is, is no wage podcast. Actually. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we can continue and then do the. We can record the intro. Yeah, later. I think so. Yeah. yeah, let's do that. We've got a hard hitting list of questions. Oh, yes. All right. I usually defer those to other people when I get them, but I've got no one to defer them to. I can Pat. turn them back on you, Pat. Oh, no. <laughs> well, the first question I wanted to start with, because I've been reading reading your bio and obviously we're doing some work together in our other hats um, outside of this podcast. And with all the stuff you do with Wameda and all the various advisory reports and, and chair, chairing uh, responsibilities that you have, how do you find the time to sleep? Uh, well, remarkably, I, I sleep very soundly. Oh, great. Um, I, I, I tend to get eight hours a night, but I'm, I'm sure your listeners are probably not really that interested in my sleeping habits. But I, like, I, I like to be busy. I like to be busy and I find everything that I do 
usually leads to other things. And I don't get fixed on on something. I like to try different things. And I think that that's been a bit of a recipe over the course of my working life generally, to do dif- different things. You meet different people. And every time I do something, you know, I'll get a phone call out of the blue. Can I do something else? And I find it hard to say no. So sleep, okay, but saying no, not so okay. <laughs> I think that's probably the moral of my story. And, and is it interest or curiosity? I think it's probably... It's probably where I feel I can add value. Obviously, I'm very committed to Melbourne's West. I'm the fourth generation of my family to live in Melbourne's West. And in a sense, I feel feel like I've still got a bit to give, particularly at a point when Melbourne's West is emerging so strongly and there's so much happening and it's growing so quickly. It's a good time to be working in Melbourne's West. So even after I left Parliament and having served the, the people of Williamstown or the Williamstown electorate for so long, I still felt like I needed to be connected in some way. So Womida and probably the Western Bulldogs Community Foundation give me an ongoing connection to the West and, again, allow me to work with some great people like the two of you. Just to dip into the politics life, I mean, the first question we had was why politics to begin with? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting one. If someone had told me, again, even in my you know, early mid twenties that I would end up in politics. I like I it it wouldn't have been something that I was aspiring to at that point. And and this is sort of the art, if you like, of allowing life to come to you a little bit without being too absolutely set and focused on achieving one thing. I know that sounds a bit unusual, but I, I had a really good chance to do work in the trade union movement. And I worked for a couple of unions. And in fact, I even had an opportunity to work with my own father at the Transport Workers Union. And I I learnt that it was really fulfilling to serve the interests of other people, of working people. And it just felt right for me. And my father had been doing it for many, many years. And I sort of got to a point about 15 years ago where I decided that maybe I could do a bit more. Maybe maybe I could take these skills and this experience and actually extend myself, but I didn't know what it would be. So I ended up doing a great program called the Williamson Community Leadership Program and met some great people, about 35 other people doing the program. And it just sort of opened my eyes to what might be possible. It also gave me a sense that I could contribute a bit more. And these people with lofty titles and qualifications as long as your arm, um, I, could, I could still keep a conversation with them, which was sort of a little surprising, but it then was the case that Steve Brax, who was the member for Williamstown and the Premier at the time, announced that he would be leaving politics. And it sort of came out of the blue. And I was living in Williamstown, my wife and one son at that point. And I just decided that this was my moment. I was in my mid-30s. I'd served a good apprenticeship in life. And probably at, at, at that point, it made sense it made sense to me. But for, for other people who were probably looking at my life, they probably said he was always on a pathway to do that. But I never saw that in myself. I just, I took the opportunities as they came. I worked really hard. And I think you make your own luck as you go along. And life has a habit of just making sense if you let it come to you a bit. And politics came to me in 2007 when I was elected. But I, I like how you mentioned, you know, it, in many ways you kind of fell into politics or you just came about at the right time in life. What would have been the alternative pathway? Like I'm not too sure. I, I would have all, always worked in a position where there was a sense of serving the community in some way. You know, it might have been that I, I, I might have worked for a community service organisation, for example. During my Williamson Community Leadership Program, we 
heard from, I think, more than 100 speakers, and one of them left a really strong mark. It was Judge Jennifer Coates. She was the then head of the Children's Court, and she she really talked to us about the challenge of youth offending and the fact that too many young people ended up in the youth justice system and simply went through a revolving door, came in, came out. And she put it to us as a group of community or emerging community leaders that we should take responsibility for this. This was not something the police or the courts or the youth justice system could fix. And it got me thinking about sort of the collision of good policy, good community leadership, strong resourcing. And if you could pull those threads together then you could actually really do something more meaningful. And at the end of that year, I became the inaugural chair of what still exists, and that is the YMCA Bridge Program. And it now has a social enterprise component to it, so it's really exciting. little plug for YMCA Rebuild if you need any home maintenance services. (laughs) But it showed very quickly that if you could provide a better mentor, a job, a secure place for a young person to live, you are able to basically provide them with the ingredients for turning their life around. And, you know, it really had a, a, a significant impact on me and it it probably opened my eyes to what was possible if you build good policy and you back it with resourcing what you can actually achieve for some of the most vulnerable yep. people in our community. So if it wasn't politics, it was going to be something like that. I just um, I found myself sort of right in that moment where in my mid-30s, um, and you need a lot of energy for politics, it just made sense. Yep. But, I, but I had some really good understanding and appreciation of what I wanted to achieve before I went into politics and I always sort of kept that close. Was there any particular, obviously you mentioned Steve, but was there any particular mentors that were helping you along the journey? Look, it might sound a bit old-fashioned, but my father was and still remains in a professional sense a really strong sort of guiding light for me and I feel very fortunate. When I became corrections minister, for example, I'd read the profile on a number of our really difficult prisoners in our system. You'd always find that many of the people that ended up in our prison system had graduated from the youth justice system and didn't have positive role models in their life from a young age. And so I felt very fortunate with both my father and my mother to have a loving household to grow up in, to have worked with my father and the nature of being a union leader as my father was at the time, he was very, very good at not telling me what to do, but guiding me to the right decision. And I suppose from a political point of view, you would naturally think that I would sort of, there would be a host of names that I would reel off that you might recognise in politics over the last 20 years. But really it was my father who was that sounding board, that person that essentially helped me make a judgment about was this something that I wanted to pursue and of course having committed his life to working people it made sense for me to follow a path in a sense because I inherited his DNA as I did with my mother's so yeah look look I'd have to say it was my probably my father Bill who had the most significant influence in relation to that decision that I ultimately came to, to move into politics. Once I got in there, of course, I got to work with all of these folk that I'd only seen on TV. And John Brumby was uh, the first Premier that I worked for. And, you know, he was almost akin to a Kennedy. You know, he, he was just he was just so polished. And, you know, I used to sit there and I felt like every every time I was in a, in a meeting with him, it was like a professional development session. I was sponging. I was a sponge and just... 
it, just every aspect of the way John conducted himself, I was learning something from. And and obviously in the latter period, then then I got to work with Daniel Andrews, which was pretty special as well. And Daniel's an extraordinary uh, leader and someone I was very privileged to, to work for and work with. And the inspiration or that sense of duty that you have towards serving a community, would you attribute that to your father as well? I think inevitably we're all influenced by things that happen when we're growing up. And for me, it was growing up in a working house and watching sort of life unfold, understanding that you could actually find greater fulfilment in serving the needs of others than you could in in terms of serving your own needs. Of course, we all have to make a living in some way and, and put food on the table. But, you know, I've actually found it, you know, the moments that mattered for me throughout my professional life are usually the ones where you can take something out of the, the fact that other people benefit from from your efforts and your energy. And anyone who's experienced that will tell you the same story. It's it's sort of pretty simple when you strip it all back. You get a huge buzz out of watching others, as I have through my various roles, reach their, their full potential through the support of others. And I've seen that with Western Chances, for example, in Melbourne's West as well. You know, what a fantastic organisation they Another are. Another plug. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm happy to be shameless about plugging Western <laughs> Chances and I, 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 I suspect you might both also do that. Yes. But yeah, look, look, fantastic organisation, fairly simple recipe. And I think when, you, when, when people can see that happening in a more local basis, somewhere close to home, it actually feels a bit different. It feels a bit more special. So I've, I've had the advantage of, of feeling that as well. And look, we're all really biased. We're all products of the Western suburbs. Yeah. And I feel, and again, I'm biased, that there isn't a sense of this solidarity or this serving the community that exists in other parts, parts of Victoria as strongly as it does in Melbourne's West. Like, you know, we've got the yeah. Wade Noonans, the the Julia Trungs of, of the West. And the Michael Limbs. And the Michael Limbs, <laughs> I'll plug myself. Thank you, Julia. So what what is it, like the recipe for Melbourne's West yeah. that produces people or this community that has a sense of solidarity, this connection to each other, connection to the place mm. that doesn't seem to exist beyond you know the six local government areas of the West? Yeah, it's a really fascinating question, isn't it? I think first and foremost, people in Melbourne's West don't take themselves too seriously. Mm. Um, I mean, they don't think that they're better than other people, you know, by and large, and I know I'm generalising, but that's my sense about people. They don't take themselves too seriously. They recognise that there's a wonderful diversity that exists in Melman's West, and it's not just a cultural diversity, but it's a diversity of people who've lived in Melman's West for generations, diversity that comes with people who've settled in Australia and in Victoria and in Melbourne, in Melman's West for the first time. There's a real sense that we as a community have a geographical boundary as well, which we're all proud of. I mean, call it six local government areas, but I think in other parts of Melbourne in particular, it's harder to define where people's patch is, where their hood is, however you want to describe it. And I <laughs> apologise for using language that's well out of date. Um, but, is but, that? but But, <laughs> but, I, but I, I, I genuinely believe that people who don't take themselves too seriously have this sense that if, if they see that their neighbour needs something, they need some help mm. or it's the person down the street or it's one of the parents associated with one of your kids at school – there's a sense that you just help because it could be any one of us in that situation and we all feel very fortunate to have available to us the basics that we need. And, and so I think that that, in a sense, in terms of my own observations, is something that I would see. And, you know, when you're a local member of parliament, you just you'd see it everywhere. 
you know, you'd see it on tree planting days. You'd see it at um, multicultural festivals. You'd see it at um, sporting events. You just see people just giving and giving and giving. And okay, we can all be a bit biased about what we see in our own backyard. But my sense was that I saw a lot of it over 11 years and it made me feel pretty good to, to live in Melbourne's West. That's a very long answer, I know, to a very <laughs> short question, but it's hard not to get really passionate about Melman's West. Absolutely. I think I completely agree. I feel like the word that comes to my mind when we think about Melman's West, or when I think about Melman's West, is that we're really humble and really grassroots. And I think it's something really unique about that energy that you don't get at other sides of the town. So what took me three minutes to answer you've said in less than 30 <laughs> seconds you so eloquently. Thank you. I, I'm going to I'm gonna go with your answer next time. Yeah, yeah. That was, what about West you, Michael? I mean, what, what do you think? West is best. Chuck out the rest. Yeah. <laughs> I've summed it up in 11 words. <laughs> yes. Now we're quoting real Dorrington because yeah, I was, know she real, listens yeah. to our podcast and she'll bring it up. <laughs> we all love real. We do. <laughs> The other question I had related to that was you mentioned at the start the rise of the West yeah. and the focus on the West and the massive explosion of investment as well as population yeah. across the across the West. It's gonna be enormous over the next decade. Yeah. And you've detailed that in previous Wormeter reports and obviously I'll do your plug here, the next Wormeter mm-hmm. report looking at Werribee as a satellite city. How do we grow and have new citizens or residents as part of Melbourne's West, but also keep that core essence of that not taking each other too seriously, that solidarity with community and looking out for the neighbours. Michael's asking all the hard questions at the moment, Julia. Yes. So I'm um, the light and fluffy one. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're keeping some in your back pocket. <laughs> Look, it, it's a really exciting time for Melbourne's West. It's it's hard really to put what's happening in, in Melbourne's West into words. I know Real has, has chucked out something that's easy for everyone to digest, but if you think about this enormous road project, the Westgate Tunnel project, it's it's offering a second river crossing and the significance of that is that when Sir Rod Ennington did a report on the east-west transport connections a number of years ago, back in about 2007-08, he said if you didn't provide a second river crossing by road, you'd essentially potentially create a dormant west in terms of the economy. So that's a really significant investment. You've got the largest public hospital project currently under development in the state in Footscray, co-located with Victoria University, which I think will create the Monash of the West, if you like, when you co-locate a university and a hospital together. We've got the biggest rail project coming in terms of airport rail. Yes, we've got suburban rail, but that's a long-term project. But you know, you're talking about a 12 to $15 billion project, which will mean that you can turn up in peak hour at Sunshine or Footscray and move you know, quickly between the airport and the city. That will transform the West. We're making the biggest rolling stock order of trains in Melbourne's West in Newport uh, at the workshop. I could go on and on and on. And we're seeing the largest population growth in the country happening in Melbourne's West. Look, I recognise that some people will say that the West has missed out historically, but I actually think the West West's moment has arrived. Mm. And I think really harnessing the opportunity as best we can by being positive about our future is the best approach we can all collectively adopt. And that's the work that Wameda are doing to try and influence decision makers about being ambitious about Melman's West. It's a funny thing when we think about sort of the way people used to view the Western Bulldogs Football Club, you know, struggling club almost went out of existence 
recent premier in 2016, you know, sitting second on the ladder, uh, hopefully will be a contender at the end of the year. There's this sense of optimism, and I know it's a bit corny to say our football team, in some respects, influences the culture of the West, but there's a sense that anything's possible. Now, how does that affect the people? I think what we're likely to see is we're likely to see a whole bunch of new people who suddenly discover the West for the first time and love what they're discovering. And yes, that's having an impact on housing prices. It's likely that we're going to get a whole lot of people who are starting to look at the West in a very different way going forward. How will that affect this sense of community? The sense that I have is because we don't take ourselves too seriously, we look out for each other. I think they'll adapt very quickly and quite frankly, they'll like what they see. So you know, the emergence of the West is really the story of the next couple of decades. And it's nice to be part of shaping that story as you are. With all the opportunities, I guess, what has, or what have you seen, what have you seen in terms of COVID's impact mm-hmm. on the, either the opportunities or Melbourne's West being, you know, I saw a stat that Melbourne's West was actually the hardest hit region of COVID in all yeah. of Australia as it stands. I think that that's undeniable. I tend to be an optimist, so I'm also seeing green shoots of life returning to the economy across Melbourne and Victoria. Job numbers have been increasing steadily, but I do think it's important to talk about an inclusive recovery rather than an economic recovery out of COVID. Now, people might say, what does an inclusive recovery mean? It means ensuring that the investments that governments make and industry, quite frankly, in terms of its economic recovery, are responsive to the people who've been hardest hit. So we're talking about people with low education attainment. We're talking about women and young people. Um, We're talking about people from multicultural backgrounds. Now, how does the government do that? When it spends lots of money on jobs programs, when it spends lots of money on infrastructure, it has to redefine what value for money looks like. It's not enough to get a product which is, or a piece of infrastructure, which is the, you know, the cheapest and and arguably it's fit for purpose. It's about ensuring that you get young people uh, engaged on those projects. It means that social enterprises get a look in down the supply chain. It means that you deliberately try and be much more inclusive. And I think You know, to the Victorian government's credit, they have been actively seeking to do that, but it's a a long road back from a COVID recovery and I don't underestimate the challenge that will exist for some people in relation to this road back. Just finally, the thing that I want to also add to this part of the conversation is I actually think it really might redefine how we work full stop and people want to work closer to home. They've learnt to discover their community and their neighbourhood in a different way. And again, there's plenty to, plenty on offer in Melbourne's West. If they can save a two-hour commute every day by working closer to home, I think governments in particular are going to have to think about decentralisation of workers more and more in the future because workers are going to increasingly demand the flexibility or want to work closer to where they live. And that's a good thing. That's to be supported because I think ultimately it will generate a happier culture, if you like, in many of the workplaces where the needs of workers are in fact supported. So I do see a great opportunity for the business activity centres such as Footscray, such as Sunshine, Werribee and in time Melton. I think we should see the emergence of each of those as satellite cities where there is a higher concentration of people working closer to home. And that follows, if you like, a trend that's being set in the US and has for a period of time before COVID came along, which comes through in terms of some of Wameda's 
those reports. And I think COVID may in fact help that. So I'm, I'm, I'm remaining optimistic about what's possible, but I think it's a complex issue and it would be it's not right to trivialise the road back because, as you say, in terms of Melbourne's West, it's it's been quite devastating in some pockets. And the last thing we want to do, particularly for vulnerable people, is make life more difficult for them. We all have a responsibility to ensure that doesn't happen. That's yeah. a bit sobering, isn't it? Yeah. No, but I, I like the message that you said of the not just uh, economic recovery but an inclusive economy. Yeah. Like this is actually the opportunity – for regeneration, but the opportunity to actually create an economy that we all want to see. And it is inclusive to see that commercial suppliers might also partner with social enterprises and that they might have more inclusive workplace policies, more flexible. So other people who may be living with a disability can actually access these jobs where previously they might not have had the opportunity to do so. I couldn't agree more. And I think that there is a real movement for, particularly amongst younger people, and I'm not a young person, but I'm seeing it everywhere. Where you work in the future, where you invest your money, where you buy a good or a service needs to be much more aligned to your values. And that's coming through everywhere. And, you know, it's been, I think, as a result of some of the Royal Commissions that have happened that have exposed really poor commercial practices. But I think, again, without generalising, I think it's right for people to be pushing a bit harder in relation to where they work and what what they'll invest in and, and where they'll buy something to actually expect that there's going to be a values alignment, whether that be about the environment, whether that be about social impact. If you can buy something of comparable value and know that you can also generate a social impact as a result of it, which provides a person a job that may not have got it, people are going to choose that. They're going to choose it. And 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 that's a really exciting and emerging thing that's happening in Melbourne and Victoria right now. You know, it's only a matter of time, I think, before we we, we should start seeing this happen in Melbourne's West in a really significant way. I'm quite passionate about that as much as I'm passionate about Melbourne's West. I think there's plenty of room and plenty of support for that. I don't know what your views are about that, but that's my my theory. And I think that that's why the social procurement framework, for example, in the Victorian government is really about actually asking a question about whether we define the value of something when we build it or whether we contract for it in a way that respects social impact. It's not right that segments of the economy enjoy all of the spoils of government infrastructure spending. It should be that what we see when cranes leave the sky and construction huts you know, leave the precinct, that the legacy of building something is that you've essentially created an opportunity for you know, 20 or 40 people to get a job, get some education through that process, and then be able to move on to the next opportunity that might present, whether that's in Melbourne's West or somewhere else. I, I think that should be really the way that we start to look at creating enduring legacy out of the money that's spent across government and um, the community, quite frankly. Mm. And that's the thing on social procurement, because I, I, I love it, as you know, Wade. We've chatted about it. We read about it. We're, we're, <laughs> both, we're both groupies, I think. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> and you mentioned like young people already buying things that have alignment to them. So in some ways at an individual level and at a smaller scale, they are engaging in social procurement because they're buying with intention, essentially. They want the value of their dollar to go beyond just these goods or services and actually get alignment with them environmentally, socially, politically. And when I talk to young people about it, and the majority of our listeners are in the 22 to 27 age gap, age bracket, sorry. And they are confused about what social procurement is, but really it's just buying with intention 
fundamentally at an individual level and all we're doing at a bigger level is just going from instead of that $30 t-shirt, we're going to a 30 or $1.5 billion hospital in Footscray. I agree with you. For me, it's about redefining the way we view value, value for money and expecting social and sustainable outcomes which align with our values. There's lots of different ways you can explain it, but quite simply, it comes back to that simple principle. Like, I think it's absolutely right that we pursue this. It will take a number of years for it to become part of the behaviour, not just of governments, but of industry, of business, but it will become increasingly important again, I think, in terms of the consumer behaviour. And I think, again, it's a good thing. And and again, it's interesting when you look at number of organisations that support, for example, Western Chances, we mentioned them earlier, they they're really attracted to put something back into the community and and younger people who are emerging, who are the future of our community. They're very keen to align their business and their brand with something that locally is, is a very, very good model. There's a second shameless plug for Western Chances, but- I'm trying uh, to get to 10 I, by the end of this podcast. That might be we'll challenging. I know, I'm like, I'm the ambassador. I don't have to say anything. <laughs> but, but I'm glad, Michael, you and others, really very passionate about this buying with intent or social procurement because it is the future. The ideas are not fully formed yet. They're not happening as they should. And there's a sense of frustration from time to time that they should be happening better. Mm. But whilst that push and that pressure sits there, it will get better because if you look at local government or state government or even the, well, let's set aside the federal government, but if you look at the practices of local and state governments, um, sustainability sits at the heart of so many of their investments and decisions, you know, whether it's building form and the number of stars, I think seven stars in in a lot of the buildings that are built these days. I mean, go back a generation, that just wasn't happening. It's now um, accepted as as something that we just do. And I think social procurement increasingly will be something that will just happen, but there will need to be a level of pressure. There'll be a sense of urgency, a pushing to make these things happen in a meaningful way. But but I think the momentum's unstoppable, which is really exciting. Yeah. The final question that I have, the final hard question. This is why I have to do (laughs) it. Go for it. It is why should young people care? about social procurement. And that's that's something that, and I don't ask that sarcastically, I, I try to actually bridge that gap between young people understanding what social procurement is theoretically, but also for them to push for it because this is their opportunity to almost recreate really inclusive economy where their values can be instilled in what their tax money is used for, really. I think it's a bit like asking a question, does inclusion matter to people? What does that mean for people? I just have this view that there's very few people I know that like to be advantaged at the expense of others. So social procurement, in a sense, is about trying to lift everyone up and not leave people behind. And I think if you agree with that principle that we live our life with a view that, yes, we work hard, yes, you need a bit of luck in life, you have to take a few risks along the way, but, you know, being successful as a person is more than the dollar value in your bank account or the size of your house or the car you drive, whatever floats your boat really. It's really about can we as a society really be comfortable that the way we're all living does not sort of damage our planet and leave people behind. And that's what social procurement's about. It's really about the social license, I think, that we all look for for to live a life where we do our bit for others. And I, I think you know, again, 
everyone's got a role to play in that. I think the question is actually more difficult for people of my generation about social procurement. It's a new concept and Mm -hmm. usually people who are in my age bracket, find it more difficult to change their behaviours. It's not impossible, but I think younger people, my sense is that when you talk about the principles that sit behind social procurement, they get it straight away. I think older older folk probably really struggle a little bit at times with the concept. No matter what questions I threw at you, I couldn't turn you into a pessimist. (laughs) Well, I can't um, can't do it. It's a very good point. Yeah, it just kept... I don't mean to be that that way. I've just turned 50 this year, so I feel quite, you know, I'm going through one of those sort of moments in life where <laughs> I'm really, yeah, I'm finding it a bit hard to come to terms with being 50. Others I know love being 50, but um, uh, not so much me. But um, in a sense, I, I think when you get to it, this point, you've lived enough of life to actually appreciate what really matters. And I, I get very excited when I talk about things such as social procurement and the emergence of Melbourne's West I love the energy that a lot of the people that I meet and get to work with in both of those areas bring to the conversations that I have with people. So it's a bit hard not to be an optimist. Yes, you can always outline why things aren't working or can't work, but I think you really, you know, if you're really going to add value to anything, bring a positive frame. You're more likely to to generate a, a better outcome than being able to articulate what the problem is. And I've I've come across too many people like that and I tend to gravitate towards people who are who find the solutions even when they're very hard to find. I guess I really wanted to deep dive a little bit more personally and, and career wise, because I know our listeners are very keen on that as well, considering how accomplished you are. <laughs> oh, really very very feeling quite awkward now. <laughs> With eight hours of sleep. Yeah, exactly. With yeah. eight hours of sleep, which is very, so you can very do this important. Sustainably. Exactly. And uh, I mean, considering we literally just did a, a podcast on, you know, burnout and how important it is to have breaks and everything like that. And I love exactly what Michael was saying, how, you know, optimistic you are with some of these really, you know, challenging situations and, and issues that our community is facing. Have you ever had a time in your 20s, 30s, 40s or now 50s where things are really hard? Like how do you go about continuing to pursue that end goal if there is one? And how do you, yeah, get yourself up every day to after eight hours of sleep? (laughs) I feel motivated to continue working at it. My most challenging period is when I became a minister and a member of parliament. It should have been the best moment of my life in a professional sense beyond the things that matter to you personally, of course. And my issues were well documented and I decided to take a break from Parliament and I was honest about why I needed to do that. For those that are less familiar with my story as a, as a minister, I was Minister for Police and Corrections. And police Corrections is a really tough area of responsibility because it's quite literally about life and death. You know, really bad things happen, great trauma is created Great responsibility falls onto leaders who choose to take on that responsibility because no one asks you to do it. You you volunteer to do that role. But I didn't expect that the trauma and grief um, that I was being exposed to in relation to, to that area would have an impact on me in the way that it did. And I didn't realise until probably my wife picked it up, how sort of withdrawn from the world that I had become and how I didn't really find any enjoyment in anything for a period that was not consistent with who I was. So I did decide to go and see Daniel Andrews and he was terrific about it. He asked me whether I had sought any professional assistance and I said no. Um, he said you should and you should take some time off and rest assured your job will be here. 
when you're ready to come back to work. And so it was that I did do exactly as Daniel suggested and I found goodness back in life again and, and you know, improved my fitness. I'd always um, been a, a pretty keen runner, um, mm-hmm. not a quick one because I run marathons. But I, I, I found goodness everywhere in music, in reading about people, in disengaging with sort of mainstream media for a period which is full of bad news and bad stories. I, I just essentially, you know, started bushwalking and doing things that I hadn't done before or hadn't done for a long time, just always through the central frame of will it bring goodness to my life? And in the smallest things, in those smallest moments and smallest interactions with people, I slowly but surely responded. And and one of the really nice things that happened, which I didn't expect, is I got letters and notes and text messages from people I knew and people I didn't know, just keen to just check in and, and, and offer a couple of words of support. And I felt the best of human kindness during that period, um, but also very, felt very supported by all of the people around me. And so that was an incredibly difficult period, Julia. And a lot of people, when I came back to work, you know, said, oh, you, you know, you were so courageous, you know, mm. to do that. And it just didn't sit right with me. I actually felt that all I could be was honest about that period of my life, how difficult it was. Mm. It shouldn't be seen as courageous to to really talk about um, mental health. As I understood my condition, I, I was suffering from vicarious trauma, mm-hmm. and that sort of mimics PTSD, where you really struggle in a very personal way with the trauma that you carry for others, and you just don't recognise it until you start to really, you know, withdraw from life a bit in a way that's, you know, if it's not dealt with, it can take you to a really dark place uh, and you know so many people end up in really dark places and sadly don't come out of them and it's so tragic mm. so you know I, I feel very fortunate but that was sort of a moment uh, for me like in a prof- professional and personal sense where you know it was a real low point but having had that experience and being honest about it in a way not letting it define you either you yeah. can you can respond and it's great that we're talking about mental health and mental illness in a way that's really open because it's important that people recognize that it, it, it it's it's something that we're all likely to experience at some point in our life there's great professional help out there be honest first step is to talk to someone that you trust doesn't have to necessarily be a family member, but just talk to someone that you trust. And usually that's the first uh, step on a pathway to a, a recovery or a, or, or, or a better place. I really, um, I guess, appreciate that you said, you know, not to let the, that moment define who you are. And I think it's so important, especially, yeah, as a young person, you know, for me, even in growing up in my my background and just feeling the immense responsibility of having to hit high grades and having to find a career, having to look after my family and feeling this crazy pressure. And, and I know, Michael, you and I have spoken about this in the past as well, where you're kind of like, you don't want to let anyone down and you don't want to fail on anyone and that feeling can be so overwhelming and I think it's so important to emphasise that, yeah, you know, where you do need to say no or where you need to take a break or where you do need to talk to someone or, you know, just take a breather, it's actually okay. Like that, it's so important that you need to look after your mental health in that way. No, I just got <laughs> – that was – yeah, I mean, thank you for your honesty. Yeah. I actually got a bit emotional hearing I your know. story. And it's, it's incredible because I think uh, – you know, I think when I when I've grown up similar to Julia, I didn't have, I had very few male role models who could display that sense of awareness and vulnerability about their mental health. 
And one of the questions I had was, how did your boys take this? Like, was there a period where you had to explain this to them and, you know, how did they support you through this period? Yeah, I think often the most difficult conversations are the ones that you need to have with the people who are closest to you. And I, I remember the boys at the time were quite there, 14 and 16 now. So we're going back a few years here. So they're a bit younger. Just being honest with them about sort of where I was at, not hiding anything from them, just talking openly about these things, I think, you know, really helped normalise it. Um, of course, you have to be, you know, you have to use plain language so that young people actually understand these things. But there's so many people who experience this that in our household, it doesn't feel unusual or abnormal to 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 be talking about this now with our boys. They've grown up with it. It's a bit unusual to have a, have a, a parent who lives their life for at least a period in the public eye anyway. And, you know, that comes with upsides and downsides. But I suppose, you know, first and foremost, in that moment, I was a parent and needed to pay, you know, the appropriate level of respect to our boys who I think are probably being exposed to this a bit more than I was when I was growing up. I remember, you know, having a chat with my sister, who's just a couple of years older, and I said, look, you know, I'm going to take this break and – you know, the media might report it that I've had a, a breakdown or I, you know, might be suicidal. Goodness knows how these things get reported once, you know, they're, they're out in the public domain. But I just needed to be really honest with her as I was with my parents as well about where I was at, what I was going to do. And, and the fact that I was then on that recovery path was actually a really positive thing from my point of view. So they were a little surprised because people who often suffer from um, poor mental health, even if it's episodic. They have a great way of masking this from even the closest people around them. I couldn't mask it from from my wife, Julie. She she could see it really plainly. I couldn't mask it from a couple of people I worked with. But everyone else probably got a pr- bit of a shock. Mm. And I, I think we've all experienced, Julie, you just talked about your journey. People see you as, as a high functioning. You can do everything. You can balance everything and you know, in a sense, you want to keep that going. But at some point you get to a stage where your, your bucket gets full and it starts mm-hmm. to overflow. And I think it's, I think we're dealing with that better these days, Michael, but I still think that um, uh, there's much more that can be done. And uh, I think your generation, younger people, are actually are much better at dealing with this than, than perhaps mine. I was just going to say, I'm, I'm still getting seven hours sleep, so that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I also just really wanted to point out the fact that, you know, obviously going through that process of identifying that you're going through something, you know, your wife obviously pointed that out, and then having a chat to your sister and identifying that, you know, there's the fear of what what is the media going to say to me. And, and in many young people, it could be the fear of like, what's my boss going to say to me? Are they going to fire me? Or, you know, how am I going to be perceived by my friends and family? But the upside to that is when you did have that break, you mentioned how many letters and people that you noticed that were checking in on you. And I think sometimes in those situations, I'm sure you'd agree, you feel more fearful of what could happen. But when you, you do realise actually there's, I've got a great community around me. Yeah, it's a fascinating insight. It's almost like a club exists out there of mm. people either are close to someone or have experienced that. They sort of, 
reveal themselves to you in various ways. I had people stop me in the street, for example. One day I was out for a jog around um, the Williamstown waterfront and I was encouraged to exercise. So I was exercising more regularly during that period. And a guy pulled up his car and got out and walked with intent across the road. And he said, hey, you. Um, (laughs) And I couldn't couldn't place him. And I'm looking around as I'm jogging. I did say I don't jog very quickly, but it was clear as he was within about 10 metres, he was actually talking to me. And he said, you won't remember me and I won't reveal this guy's name, but we met down at the Williamstown Police Station. I'm a police officer and I've got something for you. And he produced a book uh, about post-traumatic stress that he had been carrying for quite some time. He knew that I I would be out jogging and he wanted to give it to me. Good detective skills. (laughs) I I immediately felt at ease in that moment. Um, But, you know, as we got chatting, it was pretty clear that he had had to deal with his own demons in his job and many of his colleagues were dealing had had dealt with demons or were dealing with demons. Um, and, you know, I was police minister at the time, so I had many police make contact with me during that period and after and said, look, you've given us licence to be much more open about our circumstances. And I think it was then that I think Graham Ashton may have taken a period of leave, a number of other senior people. It's not why, again... It was an unexpected consequence, if you like, but you're right, Julia, I mean, a couple of things happened there. Yes, I was in that first period worrying about how people would view this. That was immediately overcome when my boss at the time, Daniel Andrews, basically said, go and get help, take the time off you need, feel no pressure, your job's job's there. Now, if there's one message to anyone who's ever in a senior position out there currently or in the future, if anyone ever comes to you essentially saying, I'm really struggling in life, offer that comfort to them without question. It will be the most important step that can be made. I wasn't expecting that, but gee, it made a big difference as soon as it came. And then of course the offers of support that come from everywhere thereafter. And you're right, you can come out of it very positively. For some people, it, it just gets to a point where it all becomes so much that it overwhelms them. Mm. And I recognised in that moment that if I didn't take that break, I was probably destined to have a much longer break from Korea, mm. probably a couple of years basically to sort of come back, probably leaving Parliament immediately at that point. It did cross my mind. I have a few more questions about if you're if you're happy to continue on the topic. Yeah, I, I, I recognise in talking about it, honestly, it's it's if it connects with a number of people who who are tuning into this podcast, it's it's actually really helpful. And I hope that anything that I might say might might be helpful to people. It usually is what happens when 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 we talk honestly about those things. Yeah. Well I, I have two, but the one that I wanted to trace back to was when when your wife was at Julie? When 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 Julie came to you and said, Hey wait, I've I've noticed X, Y, and Z how did you react to that? It was interesting because Julie had understood the pressure I was under. I had this day, um, and I was Minister for Corrections. I had this day where I'm, I was on leave. It was early in the year, let's say. It was in January. I was just having a break. I was really exhausted. So I'd really been looking forward to that. I'd been out with Julie and the boys for a, a day somewhere in Melbourne. Had a lovely day. It gets to late afternoon. I get this sort of message that someone, a prisoner, had crawled up a pole out at one of the prisons, was sitting on top of the pole and were refusing to come down. And if you fall off this pole and you fall badly, you die, right? So it went on for hour after hour, called me back into the office, but it basically 
sort of took me to the breaking point. Mm. I, I had irrationally come to this view in my mind that if this bloke fell off the pole and died, it would be my responsibility. I was getting to an irrational thought. So, you know, I was really struggling with that. Julie was seeing that. I, she was seeing me really struggle professionally. We were having lots of chats about it. But I decided that I would go and have a chat with one of my chief of staff the next morning and basically tell him that I need to take a break from work because I, I need to be rational in order to function. During the course of the conversation, we sort of got to the point where he suggested that maybe we make a few modifications, I keep working and let's see how we are in three to six months. And I decided to go with that. So I returned home after that breakfast and um, and, and sat down with Julie and she said, no, nah, that's not going to work. You just cannot keep pushing on because you're not fit to work. They weren't her words, but she was just making the point, no, this is the moment to draw the line. So I found myself within, I think, 24 or 48 hours making contact with with Daniel and then sitting down and having a conversation with him. But she basically made that call for me. As much as I wanted to push on, she could see very plainly that if I didn't make that call then, I was going to probably spiral to a darker place. Yeah. So in terms of present-day weight, yeah, um, going, going through that experience, <laughs> which was that was about 2016. So it's it's been about five years. Five yeah, years. it's five years. Or five yeah. years. Yeah, yeah. I guess what do you what do you do now for yourself to to fill that cup to make sure that you've always got that energy and that that optimism in terms of self care or exercise or whatever might that look like? Well, I should say towards the end of 2016, something very magical happened. I found myself at the MCG with my father watching the Bulldogs play the Swans in the grand final. (laughs) And that was magic. And we had a great day (laughs) and the Western Bulldogs won. So it was a lovely end to to the year because I did return to work. I returned to different duties as Minister for Industry, Employment and Resources. So I think the change in job, um, I'd always been passionate about employment and getting getting people into jobs, that was that was always something that drove me and still does to this day. So I think pretty quickly things turned around, but I, I think I might have mentioned it early that I probably have a higher awareness now of what brings goodness to my life. And I think for all of us, we actually, if you sort of got out a sheet of paper and, and wrote sort of down five things, what makes you feel good in life? And you really thought about that. It'd actually be a really interesting exercise. And I found myself doing that. What do I really enjoy? What do I get goodness out of? And inevitably- um, Social procurement, number one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, uh, it, it's, a, it's an interesting exercise. And I reckon if you did it every year, you probably change your list a little bit because your life does change. Mm. But having a, a, a fundamental or an, a, more more of an acute understanding of what brings goodness to your life and what doesn't and and seeing whether you can balance as best you can the goodness versus the opposite and i think for me you know one of the really important things is spending time with people that i love and respect and find interesting you get a lot of goodness out of your discussions with people mm. they're really important to do other things like exercise i've always been a marathon runner even from my teenage years it's, it's crazy to think that you would go out and run 42 kilometres, but I've done it like 
voluntarily. Yeah, voluntarily. <laughs> or you pay someone. You pay someone. To run in the and at the end marathon. of it, you feel absolutely exhausted. They put a, a metal around your neck and you limp off into the distance. <laughs> but but there's a it's a great metaphor for life, being able to run marathons. I, I, I hadn't been doing that. So running is really important to me. I'm not fast, but I, I really enjoy doing it because it gives me a chance to think, process the day, you know, resolve problems, listen to some bad music, listen to some wonderful podcasts. Like ours. Like ours. <laughs> I'm now owning yes, the exactly, podcast yeah. as well. Um, but, but it's a really interesting exercise. I really encourage people to do it. You don't have to be in a bad place to do that, but get out a sheet of paper and work out what brings goodness into your life and then ask yourself the question, uh, are, you, are you doing enough of the things that bring goodness? Mm. And, and if you're not, you know, Examine your diary, your calendar, and start finding a space uh, in your in your days and your weeks to start doing that, and make it a disciplined thing. And that will bring, I think, the sort of balance and happiness and fulfilment beyond you know what we do for a living. Obviously, there's a lot of goodness we can find in the work that we do, and that's important. Looking past what one's title is and how much you get paid. There should be goodness in the work that you do. If if you can't find goodness in your work. You, you shouldn't be doing it. You should find something else to do. So that was important in terms of maybe making a change for me and realising at the end of 2018, after 11 years in public life, I'd done everything I wanted to do. It was time for me to do other things. That brings me goodness to to be trying new things and working with different people. Mm. That's going to be the quote of the day. What brings goodness to my life? You're going to be the new Maria Kondo. Um, <laughs> does this spark? Yeah, does this spark joy? What <laughs> <laughs> such? Yeah, really, really good too. It's so simple, yeah. but brilliant. Yeah, it's just literally write down yeah. five things that brings you joy. Yeah. And sometimes I think, you know, it needs a platform like our podcast yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds people to actually take a moment to and, and do that, you know, and not get caught up in yeah, I'm doing how that. busy. I'm thinking of the five. Yeah. Can you think of anything? Well, exercise, definitely. Yeah. I know if I exercise, I'm just karma stuff that I would maybe have an emotional reaction to. Someone cuts me off in traffic. I think, oh, that, that person might be going through a bad day. Just let him in. Mm. Like no point having an emotional reaction. Family, seeing family and friends. Reading books. Reading books. You, I, I think know. intellectual stimulation, I need to have that. And that's really important. So like mm. just reading takes me away from problems mm. and uh, puts stuff in, into perspective. Meditation is a big one as well. You know, a lot of people think you you have to sit cross-legged with your eyes closed and your and your and your uh, <laughs> you know your fingers closed together. But really, you can find a meditative practice in anything. It could be a walk. It could be a run. It could be reading. It's just anything that you can actually look at your emotions, have distance from them, and say, "I ha- I feel these emotions, but I no longer have to act on them." And then when you do that, as I like to, I've used this analogy before. When you do that process, it's like almost like one mental bicep kill. Yeah, that you've had for your mind. Love it. And you get stronger and stronger and you can distance yourself further and further from that emotion. Um, so that's the end of my therapy session. Thank you for nice. listening. Uh, thank good. you, Dr. What, uh, Dr. Noonan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've got to pay him now. <laughs> um, I, I mean, it's, a, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when you run through a list like that, when you get really busy, what are the first things that go? Mm. All those things. All those things. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's hard if you – you know, you've sort of got to be disciplined about it and recognise that if you don't, if you start losing those things, as I did when I was really busy, like it actually has an effect on you. The longer it goes on, the more mm. it affects you. So, like, it's terrific to be doing things and being engaged in all sorts of different stuff, but increasingly, it's 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 to always have that awareness. So, you know, rather than write 
you know, a bunch of news resolutions at the end of the year that might last for three or four weeks. Perhaps that's the moment to pull out the sheet and try and work out, you know, refresh that sheet every year yep. with something new potentially to put on that, that sheet. Yeah, I've got one final question, close. Yeah, go um, which we do ask a lot of our amazing podcast guests from a career perspective as well, is have you ever felt or experienced imposter syndrome and what would be your tip in overcoming that? You'll have to explain a bit more imposter syndrome. In the sense that maybe if you had an opportunity, whether it was in politics or all the type of work that you're doing now, where you would take it, but you're not quite sure you can deliver it or you feel confident enough that you can be in the position for that. I feel that quite regularly in my own business where I'm like, crap, I've got to lead a team. I don't know if I'm actually capable for doing that, but I'm going to try to do it anyway. I almost describe it as like this voice mm. in my head where – who are you to run a podcast? Exactly. Who are you to interview Wade? Like, <laughs> it still comes up. All yeah, the time. it comes up. Or like, who, who are you to to be on the Western Metro Partnership? Like that voice yeah. comes into your mind, where it's just this nagging sense of low level doubt. This is not one that I was um, that I that I thought much about as I sort of moved careers and changed jobs and changed directions. I remember when I was sort of leaving school. You know, someone said that you're likely over the course of your working life to sort of work in sort of five to seven completely different fields doing different things. And I sort of thought, well, okay, let, let's see what sort of, let's see what professional life brings. But there was no doubt that the first day that I walked onto the floor of parliament mm. at Spring Street with all of these people looking at me because I was elected in a by-election so I didn't come in with a big group of people. There was just myself and Martin Foley who's now the, the very capable Minister for Health. We walked in there and it was like walking into some sort of bull ring. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I had to, I don't know, swear an oath or something. It was like one or two lines and I was so nervous, like – goodness me, I can't cock this up. I pretty much did. But I just, it's sort of in that moment and perhaps in in the period that followed, it's sort of really, I found myself regularly working out of my comfort zone. And and I think that, you know, I've, I've reconciled in my mind that working out of your comfort zone, pushing yourself to be in, in an environment where it's not easy, you are tested, you might feel like you can't deliver with the people that you're working with or who are working for you. I actually think that that's a good thing and I really encourage that uh, because I think and I, I, I provided you know lots of advice to a, a lot of the people that have worked with me over the years when they've been thinking about sort of that career change or that job change and often we're talking about that. You know, are you feeling challenged? Take a bigger bite, do something a bit harder, put yourself in a position where you're not comfortable because then you'll feel growth. And when you feel growth, you'll feel fulfillment. And if you're feel, feeling fulfilled, it'll hold your attention for longer and you'll get to do some really great stuff and meet some great people along the way. So I suppose in responding to this question, I, I would be full of encouragement to anyone who's sort of listening, who's thinking about that next move or should I do this? Will I be out of my depth slightly? Do it because it's the only way to feel growth. And if it doesn't work, well, you just you just move to something else. Mm-hmm. And I suspect with the both of you, you are putting yourself both in a position regularly where you are working outside of your comfort zone. And I think that I think that that's great. You know, I've got a, a, a young mate. I, I, I won't name him because he'll feel highly embarrassed. Um, um, Ollie. 
<laughs> Sorry, Ollie. <laughs> now you have to listen. Um, but, you know, Ollie's a highly capable uh, young person who's often – we often have a conversation about where his next move is and we, we always talk about putting himself in a situation which is going to accelerate his career or wherever he wants to be. It's always central to conversations we have and I love having those conversations because I feel in a sense that I'm talking to the younger me. So in a sense – that would be my sort of strong message out of this imposter syndrome. Mm. Thank you. Thanks, Wade. There's one last question actually that I really like saying or asking mm. rather. Just imagine that a young person is driving across the Westgate Bridge and there's now a, a, a signboard that you can sponsor with any message that you want to have on it. What would it be? Welcome to the best part of the world. <laughs> Woo, that's it. That's a good way to wrap up. Yay! <laughs> Wait, thank you so much. That thank was you. incredible. The pleasure was all mine. This is fun. This is really fun. <laughs> and congratulations on your work too. It's just terrific to be talking positively about Melman's West and having your voices speaking to various people who share that message with you. Thanks for giving us all a platform. Thanks so much, Wade. Thank you, Wade, for joining us. Pleasure. This podcast is proudly sponsored by the Victorian Government. The Collective West podcast is a proud recipient of the Department of Fairness, Family and Housing Cold Youth Content Campaign. As part of this series, we'll be interviewing 10 thought leaders from across Melbourne's West, ranging from education, employment and government. Stay tuned for future episodes. Julia and I are really excited about the range of interviewees that we've got coming up over the next 10 weeks. So stay tuned and stay safe.